All right, let's go ahead and get started continuing our series on using the law lawfully. Today we're looking at two commandments from the Old Testament. We'll start in Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 22 and verse 22. Look at a command that has a very unusual punishment attached to it. Exodus 22, and we'll just read verse number 22 to start. Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. So here we have the prohibition against afflicting widows and the fatherless. So the Old Testament command here is that the Jews were prohibited from mistreating or afflicting any of the, the widows in their land or any of the children who were fatherless. <coughs> And then let's read the rest of it, verse 23 and uh, 24. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. And so here we have the punishment. It's a very unusual punishment for this particular command. And that God didn't say anyone who afflicts the widows and fatherless should be put to death. He didn't say that the human government is to put them to death. He said, I will kill you. Uh, if you mess with the widows, you mess with the fatherless, I will come and I will personally kill you. Uh, and he'll kill you with the sword so he's going to have them fall in battle somewhere or something like that. So <clears throat> God is going to see to it personally that any Jewish man who mistreats a widow or a fatherless child is going to be killed. And there's, there's no human punishment at all associated with it. The human government was not told to punish them in, in any way. It's just a direct promise from God. He's the one that's going to take care of this punishment. Uh, so that's the Old Testament command. And we can see a, uh, get an idea of why God had this particular punishment if we turn to Psalm 68 and verse 5. Just flip over there real quick. Psalm 68 will be in verse 5. <clears throat> All right, Psalm 68, verse 5, and this is just representative of three or four uh, passages that we could have looked at that say basically the same thing. But here in verse number 5, Psalm 68, God says that he is a father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows, is God and his holy habitation. So when God looks down at the fatherless child and he looks down at widows, he takes those as his personal responsibility. The child that is fatherless, God says, I am that child's father. And then the, a widow that is, is left without a husband, God says, I am her judge, meaning I'm the one that will judge whether you are treating her right or wrong. I'm, I'm her defender, her protector. <clears throat> Excuse me. So God is basically fulfilling the role of a husband for the widow, and he's fulfilling the role of a father for the fatherless children. So those individuals in that type of situation, they belong directly to God. Uh, so they're not someone that God has entrusted to uh, another human being to take care of. They're someone that God himself is taking care of and seeing that their, their needs are met and that people treat them right. Uh, so... That's the Old Testament command there, that the Jews were prohibited from mistreating any of the widows or of the fatherless in their land. 
And God saw this as a very serious matter, uh, so serious that he would personally see to it that anyone who broke this commandment uh, was killed. <clears throat> now the New Testament application. In the New Testament, this command is again directly applied to Gentile believers. And so this is not a command that we can look at and say, okay, well, that's what the Old Testament said. We're not under the Old Testament law. We're under uh, grace, and so we don't have to follow that on this command. It's very specifically applied to us as Gentile believers in the New Testament. Let's turn to James chapter 1. Follow James. Let's see, James chapter 1. Uh, verse 27. So, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So the one aspect of religion that was specifically named as pure religion, this is what God wants everyone that claims to be religious, this is what he wants them to do. That is to visit the fatherless and widows and their affliction. And then there's the generic, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And that covers a whole host of uh, other aspects. <clears throat> but God could have just said, true religion is to keep yourself unspotted from the world. That would have included taking care of the fatherless and the widows and their affliction. But this, is, this aspect of religion is so important to God that he mentioned it specifically before mentioning everything else generically. Uh, so as Gentile believers, we still have the same command to take care of the fatherless and the widows that are around us. <clears throat> and let's go to the book of Acts, verse number, or chapter number 6. Familiar passage here, Acts chapter 6. This is the early days of the church, just getting started after the day of Pentecost, and then in Acts 6, verse 1, And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And we just have this one little statement here about the widows being neglected, and then it goes in to talk about how the, the deacons were uh, chosen in order to take care of this and, and serve the tables and uh, provide for the the daily work of the church so that the apostles could focus on the word of God and on prayer. But in this uh, statement here about the widows being neglected, we can see that the command for the Jews to take care of their widows was practiced and incorporated in the early church. And the church, from its very beginning, has always taken care of widows and fatherless. And even to today, that's one of the responsibilities the church is supposed to have. And this, uh, In fact, God even gave guidelines and instructions for how the church is to provide for widows in particular. He didn't do that for the fatherless. Uh, probably a little more uh, easy to see how to take care of fatherless from a common sense perspective. Uh, but for the widows, God gave specific instructions about how the church is to take care of the widows. We can find that in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So 1 Timothy chapter 5. 
verse number three begins with honor widows that are widows indeed. And then God gives between chapter or verse three all the way down to verse 16. He gives several instructions. I'm just going to pull out five of them real quick. Verse number four, we see, but if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. And jump down to verse 16. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. So the first thing that we see here is that the church should only take care of the widows who have no one else to help them. That's just a practical matter. You know, the church only has so much money that is available to take care of the widows. And so if there's any believers that have their own uh, widows in their own family, they should take care of them. And in fact, we see that verse 16 about individuals. The second point, individual believers are to take care of their own widows and their own families. But look up to verse number 8. <clears throat> but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. And I have heard this verse quoted numerous times, uh, talking about how men are responsible for providing for their wives and their children and pr provide, pr going out and getting a job and providing for the needs of their own household. That's not what the verse is talking about. The verse is talking about widows in your family. And it's saying that the men are to provide for the widows of their own family especially those of his own house, and if he doesn't do that, he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So that's how seriously God takes, still, even in New Testament times, God still takes very seriously this idea of taking care of widows and the fatherless. And then the third instruction here, uh, verses 5 through 7, the duty to the widows is only owed to those widows who are desolate. Verse number five, now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplication and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. Okay, so we have two different widows contrasted here. The one that's a widow indeed, desolate, doesn't have money. She's the one that the church needs to be taking care of because she's the one that's trusting in God. And then you have the other one that has all kinds of money. She's living in pleasure, living a life of pleasure even though she's a widow. And the Bible says of her, she's dead while she liveth, uh, which shows you how God thinks of the, the life of pleasure with that being as your goal. Uh, so the church is to take care of the widows that are desolate and that are widows indeed, uh, and not the widows that have plenty of finances and are out uh, living the life of pleasure. And then finally, we see that the church should only provide for widows that have a good reputation. Verse number 10 uh, says that, uh, oh, sorry, I skipped one. Uh, fourth one, the church shall only provide for widows who are over 60 and who have not remarried. That's verses 9 and 11. Let not a widow be taken into the number under three score years old, having been the wife of one man. <clears throat> but the younger widows, verse number 11, but the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry. And so the church isn't to take care of the younger widows, and you have that. Uh, throughout the rest from verse 13 down through 15, uh, Paul talks about these younger widows and what he would have them to do. He wants them to remarry, raise children, guide their households in serving the Lord. Uh, but the church is to take care of the widows who are over 60 
and who have not remarried. And then in the fifth thing, the church should only provide for widows who have a good reputation. Verse number 10, well reported of for good works, if she have brought up, brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she hath uh, washed saints' feet, saints' feet, I cannot read today, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. So the widows that the church is to take care of are the widows that have a good reputation. If you have someone out there that's got a reputation as a, a scam artist that's uh, just just out to get money so she can spend it on uh, things for herself and, and just uh, uh, alcohol or drugs or whatever, uh, those widows you don't take care of. Someone that's angry and bitter and hateful toward the people that come to visit her, the church is not to take care of that type of a widow. Is to take care of the widows that are well reported of, the widows that have done good things, that have a good reputation uh, for serving the Lord. So God gave five guidelines for the church for taking care of the widows. <clears throat> and he did restate this command that the church is to, and Gentile believers individually, are to take care of the fatherless and the widows that are among us. So that's the Prohibition against afflicting the widows and the fatherless. Any comments or questions on that one before we move on to the next one? Right, that one's not very inflammatory. Everyone agrees with that one already. All right, let's move on to the next one. This is the command against covetousness. We can go to Exodus 20 and verse 17. should be a passage that most of you have memorized at one time or another. Part of the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> Exodus 20, 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Okay, so here we have the prohibition against covetousness. The Old Testament command is that the Jews were forbidden from coveting anything that did not belong to to them. Okay, and then this command goes a little bit further. If we go back two chapters to Exodus 18, the Jews are actually commanded not only to not be covetous themselves, they're also commanded to choose rulers over them who hate covetousness. Exodus 18, verse 21. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands or rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So going all the way down to uh, the lowest level of government, the Jews were to have people in their government who hated covetousness, people who uh, were not greedy and were so opposed to being greedy that they hated the, even, even the concept of covetousness. So this is a, a commandment that was given to the Jews. They're not to be covetous themselves. They're not to have people ruling over them who are covetous. And we can see throughout their history how often they failed at that. And it always turned out uh, to their detriment when they had rulers that were covetous. Uh, and then, of course, you have many examples of Jews that were covetous themselves. For example, thinking of Achan, who stole the uh, gold and silver and, and uh, garments 
from Jericho and ended up with the Jews losing the, the next battle as a result, and then he was uh, stoned to death uh, because of his greed. So many examples of that throughout the Bible. Now this also is an interesting command in that it prohibits an internal desire and not just an external action. Most of the laws and the commandments have to do with external actions, but there are several that have to do with internal desires, and this is one of those. Um, another one would be the command to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. I mean, well, how do you, how does someone else know if you are loving the Lord your God with all your heart? You know, there's indicators they can look at, but they can't really see your heart. Only God can see that. Now, the same thing with this one. You can't really tell when someone else is covetous. You can tell when you are covetous yourself, but I can't tell when one of you is covetous. Uh, it's something that God has to see from the inside of the heart. Uh, but you can find out when someone admits to covetousness. Uh, and so you have that that can play into how to determine whether someone is covetous. And then, of course, things that uh, come about because of their covetousness, like theft. Those are punishable as separate actions. Uh, but it's interesting that God many times included commands that prohibited internal desires or commanded internal desires that were not evident on the outside all the time. Uh, and it shows that it's ethical to have laws which prohibit certain emotions or desires or laws that command certain emotions or desires. Uh, it's not very easy for us to, to have those laws ourselves because how do you police them? How do you tell if they're being carried out? But there's nothing unethical about the concept of having a law uh, commanding a particular emotion or prohibiting this, a particular emotion. Now, for example, in America we have hate crime laws. Uh, and I think some of them are rather stupid because some of the hate crime laws have no way of uh, being policed and being, being applied. But there's nothing unethical about it. It's not wrong. It's not sinful. I think that they're not necessary and that we could, be, we could get along just fine without them. But I can't say that they're unethical or that they're sinful. And I've heard some people do that. They go on and on and on. How immoral it is that we have these hate crime laws. And, you know, it's not immoral. If you say that's immoral, you have to say that God was immoral for instituting similar laws in the Old Testament. And, of course, we can't say that. All right, so that's the Old Testament command. Let's look at the New Testament application. Just like the command for uh, treating the widows well and the fatherless well, this command is also repeated in the New Testament. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 5. In fact, this law isn't just repeated in the New Testament. This is one of the most talked about sins in the New Testament, is the sin of covetousness. Uh, Hebrews 13 and verse 5. And we are not going to look at all the passages in the New Testament that talk about it. Uh, don't have that much time. There are a lot of them. All right, verse number 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So here we have a direct command to us as New Testament Gentile believers that we are to have our conversation without covetousness and that we are to be content with what we have. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 3. See the same thing repeated here. 
Ephesians 5, verse number 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. And so again, we're not to have covetousness ever be named among us. That means it, it should be so far from us as Christians to be covetous that when someone says, hey, that, that Christian's greedy, he's always looking to get things that don't belong to him, that everyone says, that's ridiculous. A Christian wouldn't be covetous. Of course, we can't say that now. Uh, the testimony of American Christianity is a pretty uh, covetous testimony. We can't say American, you know, Christians are, are not covetous people. Uh, it's just it's what we should be, but we can't say that. All right, so the command is repeated here. Another thing we see about covetousness in the New Testament is that God views it as the same sin as idolatry. Go down two verses to Ephesians 5, verse 5. For this you know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So God looks at a covetous man as an idolater. And then Colossians 3, and verse 5, we see that again. And we looked at these verses when we were talking about idolatry and the commandment against idolatry. We'll just look at them again. Colossians 3, verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so in the New Testament, God identifies covetousness as the same thing as idolatry. That's why pastors for years have stood in the pulpit and have said that if you put anything ahead of God, then you're an idolater. If you put your job and, and get earning wages ahead of serving the Lord, then that's idolatry. Your job has become an idol to you. If you put you know, watching TV as ahead of serving God, then the TV has become an idol to you. We've heard preachers say that for years and years and years. This is why they say that, based on Colossians 3, 5 and Ephesians 5, 5, where the Bible says that covetousness is the same thing as the sin of idolatry. So we have the command given specifically to us in the New Testament. God equates it with the sin of idolatry. And then we can go one step further in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This sin is so egregious to God that he forbids us from even associating with believers who are covetous. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse number 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother excuse me, be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. Excuse me. So, <clears throat> God wants Christians to be so far away from covetousness that he commands us to not even associate, not don't even eat a meal uh, with someone who claims to be a Christian and also is a covetous individual. All right. To get into politics here, this is one of the reasons that I could not vote for Donald Trump. Uh, if he claims to be a Christian, although I, I don't think that he is because he uh, 
also claims that he's never asked God for forgiveness for anything. I don't see how you can be a Christian and never ask God for forgiveness. But he claims to be a Christian. People claim that he is a Christian. Other Christians say that he's a Christian. And yet he's also openly covetous and admitted it as much. He said, I'm, I'm greedy, I'm greedy, I'm greedy, and now I just want to be greedy for America. That's what he, what he said about his covetousness when he was asked about it. Uh, and so here you have someone that's called a, a Christian, claims to be a Christian, and he's covetous. So we're not to associate with him. Uh, those that believe that Trump is a Christian are wrong for associating with him. Now, if you believe Trump is not a Christian, then you know, he, if uh, you have verse number 10 in 1 Corinthians 5 that you could apply there and say, uh, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. So Paul's saying the covetous people in the world, it's okay to associate with them because otherwise you'd have to leave the world entirely, which we can't do that. But those that are covetous in the church, those that are Christians and say and are covetous, you're not to have anything to do with them. And he didn't say just those that are Christians, but those that are called a brother. So a man that is called a brother uh, be covetous. So, you know, as much as I appreciate Trump being the president, if he were to come to me today and say, hey, I want you to uh, have lunch with me, I would tell him no. I would say, First Corinthians 5, verse number 11 tells me no. I'm not going to have lunch with you. Even if you're the president, you're called a Christian by people. If I have lunch with you, people are going to think that I am associating myself with you as a Christian who is covetous. Uh, and I can't hurt the testimony of Christ that way. So God takes this sin very seriously. Uh, we need to take it pretty seriously too. Uh, regardless of how nice the person may be that is covetous, Regardless of how many great things he may have done, which, what position he holds, if you have a man that is a believer who is also covet or is called a believer and is also covetous, we're to have nothing to do with him. It's the same. the The application Paul was making here was for a man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and Paul was saying you need to kick him out of the church and have nothing to do with him. That's the context of Paul saying this. That's why he mentions. Uh, a brother be a for any man that is called a brother be a fornicator. He was talking about that man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and then he also listed, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or drunkard, or an extortioner. So he lumped all those people in with the same man who's claiming to be a Christian, and it's openly engaging in fornication. That Paul said was so bad that not even the Gentiles, or not even the the lost, uh, there in the city of Corinth. Uh, would openly admit to that kind of a sin. So that's where God puts the sin of covetousness in that same kind of category. And we should put it there too. So that's the, the commandment against covetousness. It's forbidden to the Jews under the Old Testament. It's forbidden to us as Gentiles under the New Testament. And it's, it has very strong condemnation from God. All right, any comments or questions on that one? That one's a bit more in your face and <laughs> harsh to us than the previous one. Any comments? In verse 11 it says a railer? Yes. A railer is someone that uh, railing is to rise up in loud and violent opposition.
So it's basically someone that's quick to fight. Um, the opposite of that would be uh, the way a pastor is supposed to be, just calm, and you have that in, uh, in Timothy, First Timothy, where it gives the descriptions of a pastor that he's not to be a railer. Instead, he's to be calm and resolute and willing to let the other side have their say and then respond calmly and, and re, uh, to the other side instead of reacting in violence. Anything else? All right. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer today. Brother Ramon, can you dismiss us in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we 